On a fateful autumn afternoon in 1971, a mysterious stranger descended upon the Northwest Orient Airlines counter in Portland, Oregon. Wrapped in an air of anonymity, he introduced himself simply as Dan Cooper. But little did anyone know this unassuming gentleman would spark one of the most perplexing and enduring mysteries in FBI history. With cash in hand, Dan Cooper purchased a one-way ticket on flight 305 bound for Seattle, Washington. And so, the stage was set for a thrilling and enigmatic adventure that would captivate the nation and puzzle investigators for decades to come. Greetings and welcome to As Yet Unexplained, a podcast series dedicated to exploring the mysteries and enigmas that continue to evade explanation. Our aim is to delve into the unknown, to shed light on the unexplained, and to offer new perspectives on the world around us. We would like to express our appreciation for your support and kindly request that you consider sharing your thoughts with others by liking, subscribing, or leaving a review on your preferred podcast platform. Your feedback is invaluable in helping us to grow and improve our content. Please note that the content of this podcast may contain unsettling descriptions and discussions that may be distressing to some listeners. As always, we exercise caution and sensitivity when presenting these stories, and remind our listeners to take care if they find such material disturbing. Furthermore, we would like to acknowledge and pay homage to the victims of these stories. Our thoughts and condolences are with them and their families, and we ask that you join us in sparing a moment of reflection and empathy for those who have suffered. Join us as we explore the unknown and unravel the mysteries of the world in As Yet Unexplained. A middle-aged man with a black attache bag approached the Northwest Orient Airlines flight counter at Portland International Airport on Thanksgiving Eve, November the 24th, 1971. His intention was to board flight 305 on a 30-minute northward excursion to Seattle-Tacoma International Airport, also known as SeaTac. The gentleman very pleasantly introduced himself as Dan Cooper, and paid with cash. Cooper stepped onto the Boeing 727-100 FAA registration N467US and took his seat, designated 18C, although in some accounts the seat number is also given as 15D or 18E. When the flight attendant approached him, 
he placed a drink order for a bourbon and coke. Those who had physically seen this unassuming gentleman often described him as being in his mid-forties and dressing professionally with a business suit, black tie and white shirt. Cooper was reported by Schaffner, a 24-year-old flight attendant and just so happened to be D.B. Cooper's first interaction on the trip, as being composed, courteous and well-spoken. According to another flight attendant, Tina Monklow, he was not tense and he gave out a good vibe. He always exhibited thoughtfulness and composure. At 2.50pm, flight 305, which was about one-third full, was ready for takeoff. Cooper placed an order for a bourbon and soda. Cooper gave Florence Schaffner, the flight attendant, a message shortly after departure. Schaffner threw the unread paper into her handbag after presuming it included a lonely businessman's phone number, a practice she had experienced before. Cooper moved in close and said, Miss, you better look at that note. I have a bomb. He delivered the flight attendant the note shortly after 3pm, stating that he did indeed have a bomb within his briefcase. The memo was written with a felt-tip pen and was neatly penned in all capital letters. Cooper subsequently pocketed the note, therefore we have no record of the message, and due to the passage of time, Schaffner cannot remember the precise words but she does remember that it mentioned the bomb and told her to sit in Cooper's seat. Schaffner complied with the request before asking to inspect the device in silence. Eight red cylinders in two rows of four, which she supposed to be explosives, were visible as Cooper cracked open his briefcase for a brief moment. The cylinders had wires connecting to them and the suitcase contained a big cylindrical battery. The astonished flight attendant followed the instructions of Cooper. He forced her to write down what he said. His demands were $200,000 in negotiable American currency, four parachutes, two primary and two reserve, and a fuel truck waiting in Seattle to fill the aircraft when it arrived. Cooper was sporting a pair of dark shades when Schaffner left the cockpit after relaying Cooper's orders to the pilots. The flight attendant made her way to the cockpit and handed the message over to the pilots. William A. Scott, the captain, made a call to Air Force Traffic Control at Seattle-Tacoma Airport, which alerted state and federal authorities. A minor technical malfunction would delay their arrival in Seattle. It was disclosed to the additional 35 passengers. President of Northwest Orient, Donald Nyrop, authorized the payment of the ransom and issued an order to all employees mandating strict adherence to the hijackers' demands. In order to give Seattle Police and the Federal Bureau of Investigation enough time to gather Cooper's parachutes and ransom money and to activate emergency workers, the aircraft circled Pudget Sound for almost two hours. Tina Mucklow noted that Cooper seemed to be familiar with the surroundings since he said, 
looks like Tacoma down there, when the plane went over it. He also noted, properly, that Seattle-Tacoma Airport and McCord Air Force Base were both about a 20-minute drive away at the time. According to Schaffner, Cooper contrasted with the preconceptions of hijackers and political dissidents that were then usually associated with air piracy by being cool-headed, polite and well-spoken. Mucklow informed the investigators that he was not tense. He wasn't nervous. He seemed rather nice. He was never cruel or nasty. He was thoughtful and calm all the time. As Schaffner became aware of the seriousness of what was happening, Cooper comforted her. He made a second order for a bourbon and soda during the Seattle stop, paid his drink tab and requested meals for the flight crew during the stop in Seattle. Cooper responded when Mucklow inquired whether he had beef with the Northwest Orient. I don't have a grudge against your airline, miss. I just have a grudge. Is what he said. The ransom money was collected by FBI agents from several banks in the Seattle area. It consisted of 10,000 unmarked $20 bills, the majority of which had serial numbers that started with the letter L, indicating that they were issued by the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco. Cooper demanded four civilian parachutes with manually driven ripcords in place of the military-issue parachutes that McCord AFB staff had given. They were acquired by Seattle police from a nearby skydiving academy. Cooper was told that his requests had been fulfilled. Around an hour after nightfall, the plane touched down at Seattle-Tacoma Airport in the lashing rain. Cooper gave Scott the order to taxi the plane to a remote, well-lit area of the runway and close all cabin window shades to ward off police snipers. In order to prevent Cooper from mistaking his airline outfit for a police officer, Northwest Orient Seattle Operators Manager Al Lee approached the aircraft in casual attire. He then handed Mucklow the cash-filled bag and the parachutes via the rear stairway. Cooper instructed that all the passengers, Schaffner and senior flight attendant Alice Hancock, were to leave the plane, which they did. A second and eventually a third truck were brought in to finish the refuelling. A face-to-face -face meeting with Cooper aboard the airplane was requested by an FAA official, but was turned down. Let's get this show on the road, Cooper said in a message to the team after growing irritated and remarking, this should not take so long. Cooper gave the cockpit crew an overview of his flight plan. A southeast route towards Mexico City at the lowest velocity that would not cause the plane to stall, roughly 100 knots, that's 115 miles per hour, and a top altitude of 10,000 feet. He also mandated that the cabin remain unpressurised, the wing flaps be dropped by 15 degrees and the landing gear stay in the takeoff slash landing position. William J. Ratatzak, the aircraft's first officer, informed Cooper that given the aircraft's reported flying configuration, its range was limited to only 1,000 miles, 
requiring a second refueling before reaching Mexico. After weighing their options, Cooper and the crew chose to make a fuel stop at Reno Tahoe International Airport. Cooper also gave the order for the back escape door to be open and the air stair to be extended before takeoff. The home office of Northwest objected, claiming that it was risky to take off with the stairs extended. Cooper ultimately decided to lower it once they were in the air and asked Mucklow to show him how to use the steps. At 7.40pm, the Boeing 727 took off. Cooper was oblivious to the two McCord AFB F-106 fighters that were trailing the aircraft, one above it and the other below a Lockheed T-33 trainer that had been diverted from an unrelated Air National Guard duty also followed the 727 until it ran out of fuel and made a U-turn close to the Oregon-California state line. After takeoff, Cooper told Mucklow to enter the cockpit and remain there with the curtain closed. Around 8 o'clock p.m., a warning light flashed on the cockpit indicating that the aft air stair equipment had been activated. The pilots asked Cooper over the cabin intercom if he needed assistance. Cooper picked up the cabin phone and replied, No. This was Cooper's last message. The crew noticed a subjective change in the air pressure as soon as the rear door was opened. Around 8.13pm, the aircraft's tail portion experienced a sudden upward movement that was significant enough to require trimming to get the aircraft back to level flight. Sometime between 10 o'clock and 11.30 p.m., the 727 landed at Reno Tahoe International Airport, with the aft air stair still in its open position. The FBI, state troopers and sheriff's deputies and Reno police gave the plane a wide berth even though they were close by in case the bomb was still live. The FBI bomb disposal squad reported that the cabin was clear following a 30-minute inspection, and Captain Scott verified that Cooper had left the ship. It was evident that somewhere between Seattle and Reno, a little after 8 o'clock p.m., the hijacker had accomplished the unbelievable. He had jumped out of the back of the plane, carrying the ransom money and a parachute, Cooper had disappeared into the night, his whereabouts and identity unknown. The investigation begins. When he got on a plane in Portland, Oregon last night, he was just another passenger who gave his name as D.A. Cooper. But today, after hijacking a Northwest Airlines jet, ransoming the passengers in Seattle, then making a getaway by parachute somewhere between there and Reno, Nevada, the description on one wire service, master criminal. Bill Curtis reports. FBI agents discovered 66 latent fingerprints on the aircraft that had not been recognized or matched with any within their database. The agents also found Cooper's black clip-on tie, tie clip, 
two of the four parachutes, one of which had been opened, and two broken shroud lines from the canopy. Of the four chutes Cooper requested, he used just two to leap, including one that had been used for instruction and had been sewn shut. He secured the money bag that had been taken with the cord from one of the leftover parachutes. Authorities in Reno, Portland and Seattle questioned witnesses. A number of composite drawings were also produced based on witness testimony. 36 passengers got off the jetliner in Seattle last night, left aboard four crew members and the hijacker, dressed in a business suit demanding $200,000 and carrying a plain briefcase which he told the crew held explosives. With the full ransom collected from Seattle banks and four parachutes aboard, the plane headed for Reno. It took three and a half hours, slow for a jet, but the hijacker had given detailed flight instructions. The rear stairwell was open all the way. It arrived at Reno in shreds. The FBI started a detailed investigation that lasted many years after learning about the crime while in flight. Under the code name Norjack, the Northwest Hijacking, they investigated the case, interviewing hundreds of passengers, pursuing leads throughout the nation, and scouring the aircraft for evidence. They had considered more than 800 possibilities by the time the hijacking's fifth anniversary rolled around, and eliminated all but two dozen of them. Potential suspects were questioned immediately by the FBI and local police. When Portland police wondered whether the hijacker had previously committed a crime using either his real name or the same alias, they contacted a man from Oregon by the name of D.B. Cooper, who had a limited number of minor offences on his police record. He was quickly eliminated as a suspect, but local reporter James Long, who was pressed for time, thought the rejected suspect was the hijacker. A wire service reporter, possibly Clyde Jabin of UPI, repeated the error, which was then picked up by other media sources. The name D.B. Cooper will always henceforth be associated with the hijacker. Landing Sites As I say, there's no way of knowing when he jumped. After the door come open, he may have stood there 15 minutes waiting for the, the proper spot to come up that he could have had marked in advance, but summation. Are you uh, figuring or going on the assumption there might have been an accomplice long on this? No way of knowing. Uh, pure logic would indicate that this man uh, was very familiar with a lot of things. The stalling speed of the airplane, if, if and I am assuming from what I've heard, that he uh, told them what speed to fly, what altitude, uh, 15 degree flaps, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm, uh, I'm uh, assuming that he knew quite a bit about the airplane. If so, he must be uh, well aware of uh, jump procedure. So maybe, uh, maybe he's a skydiver, I don't know. It was challenging to pinpoint a search region since even little vibrations in the aircraft's speed estimations or the weather conditions along the flight path, which varied by location and altitude, significantly altered Cooper's anticipated landing position. The amount of time Cooper stayed in freefall before pulling his ripcord was a crucial factor. Both Air Force F-106 pilots reported seeing nothing leave the aircraft, either visually or on radar and neither saw a parachute deploy. 
Nevertheless, it being nighttime, visibility was extremely poor, and there was cloud cover that obscured any land illumination below. The T-33 pilots never made visual contact with the 727. The FBI was able to recreate the upward motion of the tail section and momentary change in cabin pressure described by the flight crew at 8.13pm in an experimental reenactment using the same aircraft used in the hijacking and the same flight configuration by pushing a 200-pound sled out of the open air stair. A location on Mount St. Helens' southernmost extension, a few miles southeast of Ariel, Washington, near Lake Merwin, was where first extrapolations put Cooper's landing zone. Lake Merwin is a man-made lake that was formed by a dam on the Lewis River. The focus of the search efforts in Clark and Cowlitz counties was the northwest Washington region, just south and north of the Lewis River. FBI agents and sheriff's deputies from those counties combed a sizable area of the rugged terrain on foot and by air. Door-to-door searches were also conducted at nearby farms. Other search teams ran patrol boats along Yule Lake, the reservoir to the east, and Lake Merwin. Cooper, along with any equipment believed to have left the aircraft with him, was never seen again. Well, not for a while at least. Additionally, the FBI organized a helicopter and fixed-wing aerial search using Oregon Army National Guard aircraft throughout the whole flight path from Seattle to Reno, called Victor 23 in American aviation terminology, yet another common mistake that runs rife through Cooper literature refers to it as Vector 23. Numerous shattered trees, a great deal of plastic and other items resembling parachute canopies were seen and investigated, but nothing related to the hijacking was found. What do you do with $200,000 worth of money when you jump? You don't jump out with a suitcase in your hand at 200 miles an hour at 7,000 feet. So quite likely uh, he took a section of this chute, rolled the money up in it, and made a money belt out of it. Uh, this would be logic. Then, uh, who knows? Judging from the facts available about the parachutes, are you reasonably sure that a safe jump could have been made? Definitely. There are several law enforcement officers here who belong to uh, or have done some skydiving, and at that speed and altitude, uh, no problem. With the aid of 200 United States Army officers from Fort Lewis, as well as members of the United States Air Force, National Guard, and volunteer citizens, teams of FBI agents conducted another extensive ground search of Clark and Cowlitz counties for 18 days in March, and then for another 18 days in April. The 200-foot depths of Lake Merwin were searched by a submersible run by the Maritime Salvage Business Electronic Explorations Company. Two local women in Clark County discovered a skeleton in an abandoned structure. It was revealed to be the remains of Barbara Ann Derry, a teenage girl who had sadly been abducted and murdered a short time before. The extensive search and recovery effort ultimately yielded no tangible evidence of the hijacking. Follow the money. The FBI distributed lists of the ransom serial numbers to financial institutions, casinos, racetracks and other businesses that frequently managed large cash transactions. 
as well as to law enforcement organisations worldwide. Northwest Orion offered a reward of up to $25,000 and 15% of the money found. U.S. Attorney General John N. Mitchell made the serial numbers available to the public at the beginning of 1972. Two con artists used bogus $20 bills with Cooper's serial numbers to defraud Newsweek journalist Carl Fleming out of $30,000 in exchange for an interview with a man they falsely claimed was the hijacker. While the ransom money was still missing at the start of 1973, the Oregon Journal published the serial numbers and offered a $1,000 prize to the first person to turn in a ransom bill to the paper for any FBI field office. The Seattle Post-Intelligentsia announced a $5,000 reward for information. Thanksgiving 1974 saw the agreement still in effect, and despite a few close matches, no genuine banknotes had been found. Global Indemnity Co., Northwest Orient's insurance provider, paid the airline's $180,000 claim on the ransom money in 1975 as a result of a Minnesota Supreme Court ruling. Subsequently, evaluation showed that the first estimate of the landing zone was inaccurate. Captain Scott, who was manually flying the aircraft since Cooper needed to fly at a high speed and altitude, later found that his flight path was farther east than initially thought. According to a number of sources, including Continental Airlines pilot Tom Bonham, who was flying four minutes behind Flight 305, the wind direction considered when estimating the drop zone had been incorrect, maybe by as much as 80 degrees, according to further evidence. This information, together with further information, showed that the actual drop zone was south-southeast of where it was previously believed to be, in the drainage basin of the Washougal River. FBI agent Ralph Himmelsbach wrote, I have to confess, if I were going to look for Cooper, I would head for the Washougal. Private individuals and organisations conduct a number of searches in and around the Washougal Valley in the years that followed but no artefacts related to the hijacking have yet been discovered. Some researchers have suggested that the 1980 explosion at Mount St. Helens may have completely erased all physical evidence. On July 8, 2016, the FBI announced that it was postponing the Cooper case while focusing its investigative workforce and resources on cases with a higher and more urgent priority. Any true physical evidence that may eventually surface and be specifically connected to the parachutes or the ransom money will still be accepted by local field offices. The 66-volume case file of the 45-year inquiry will be preserved for future historical research at FBI headquarters in Washington, D.C., and all of the evidence is available to the public. In the history of commercial aviation, the event remains to be the only unsolved air piracy case. Physical Evidence The three primary pieces of evidence found on board the aeroplane were eight filter-tipped Raleigh cigarette butts, a black clip-on tie and a mother-of-pearl tie clip. Sometime after the hijacking, the cigarettes disappeared. 
In November 1978, a deer hunter in Castle Rock, Washington, located a plaque along a logging road far from Lake Merwin, but still on Flight 305's primary flight path. The plaque indicated directions on how to lower a 727's rear steps. Then the Dwayne Ingram family entered the picture last February. I was going to build a fire, and I had some wood in my arm, and I got ready to set it down, and my son ran up and said, wait a minute, Daddy. So he raked uh, a place out in the sand there, and there it was. It kind of tumbled up on the top. What his young son found was part of Cooper's loot, badly decomposed in bundles, still in the same order when packed nine years ago. On February the 10th, 1980, eight-year-old Brian Ingram and his family are on vacation at Tina, or Tena Bar, a Columbian River coastline close to Vancouver, Washington, some nine miles downstream and 20 miles southwest of Ariel. He found three packets of the ransom money, totaling around $5,800, while searching the Sandfield Riverbank for a place to build a fire. Rubber bands that were holding the bills in place were still intact, but the bills had broken down from lengthy exposure to the elements. A third packet of 90 $20 bills was also discovered, along with two packets, each containing $120 bills. They were all arranged in the same way as when they were given to Cooper, and FBI analysts confirmed that the money was really a component of the ransom. The discovery triggered many more rounds of discussion and eventually raised additional questions. Initial assertions by scientists and investigators were based on the notion that the bundle of bills had freely flown into one of the Columbia River's several associated tributaries. An Army Corps of Engineers hydrologist claimed that the banknotes had rounded disintegration and were matted together indicating that they had been deposited by river action rather than deliberately buried. The beach is five miles northwest of Vancouver. The Army Corps of Engineers had dredged the Columbia River here in 1974. The loot had been on the bottom, washed downstream over a three and a half year period, and now on shore where FBI agents combed the sand like archeologists. All they found was $5,800 and no sign of D.B. Cooper. But in the town of Ariel, the people are sure he's still alive. But a lot of them still think he landed in this area somewhere, made his way towards the Columbia somehow. For all we know, he's been here. You know, walked in, had a beer, and walked out. If confirmed, such a discovery would support the theory that Cooper had not made landing at Lake Merwin or any other Lewis River branch that empties into the Columbia downstream of Tanabar. Furthermore, it provided evidence in favor of the drop zone's proximity to the Washagall River, which empties into the Columbia upstream of the site of the discovery. The free-floating theory had issues since it was unable to explain why ten notes from one packet were missing, as well as why the three packets would have remained together after being cut off from the rest of the money. Himmelsbach stated that there was no way to reconcile the geologic and physical data, and that rubber bands would have long since deteriorated if free-floating bundles had not washed up on the coast within a couple of years of the hijacking. Geological information, however, indicates that Tina Barr received the bills long after 1974, when the Corps of Engineers started dredging that portion of the river. Geologist Leonard Palmer of Portland State University 
found two separate layers of sand and debris between the clay the dredge had dumped on the riverbank and the sand layer in which the banknotes were buried, indicating that the bills came after the dredging had already been completed. According to a study of diatoms found on the banknotes completed in late 2020, the bundles found at Tina Bar may not have been buried dry or submerged in the river at the time of the hijacking in November 1971. Following protracted discussions, the recovered bills were divided equally between Ingram Northwest Orient's insurance in 1986. The FBI retained 14 samples as proof. Approximately $37,000 was made by Ingram in 2008 from the auction sale of 15 of his bills. The ransom money found in the Columbia River is the only concrete evidence of the hijacking that has ever been discovered outside of the aircraft. Although they later recognise that there is no proof that the hijacker was the source of the sample material, the FBI first claimed that a partial DNA profile had been retrieved from samples found on Cooper's tie in 2001. Special Agent Fred Gutt stated, The tie had two small DNA samples and one large sample. It's difficult to draw firm conclusions from these samples. Along with posting previously unreleased composite images and fact sheets, the Bureau also made a file of previously undisclosed material, including Cooper's 1971 airline ticket public, and asked the general public for assistance in identifying Cooper. The FBI also revealed that Cooper had selected one of the two reserve parachutes, a dummy, which was an inoperative unit with a sewn-shut chute intended for classroom demonstrations, despite the fact that an experienced skydiver would have known this was non-functional over the two primary parachutes that were provided to him. Cooper had also chosen the older of the two primary parachutes rather than the technically superior professional sports parachute. He secured the money bag with the string from the working parachute he had used to jump with. Apparently, in March 2009, Carol Abrazinskis, a scientific artist, and Alan Stone, a metallurgist, formed a team of citizen sleuths under the direction of Tom Kay, a paleontologist from the Burke Museum of Natural History and Culture in Seattle. The crew afterwards, known as the Cooper Research Team, performed a fresh examination into the case's critical aspects using current tools such as GPS and satellite photography that was not available in 1971. Despite learning little new about the concealed ransom money or Cooper's landing zone, they were able to find and analyse hundreds of microscopic particles on Cooper's tie using electron microscopy, along with the bismuth and aluminium shards Lipodium spores, perhaps from a drug, were also found. In January 2017, Kay revealed that the rare earth minerals including cerium and strontium sulfide had also been identified along with these particles from the tie. One of the few applications for such materials in the 1970s was Boeing's research into supersonic travel increasing the likelihood that Cooper worked for the company. Cathode ray tube manufacturers, including Teledyne and Tektronik, 
both of which have their headquarters in Portland, were further prospective providers of the material. In November 2011, Kay claimed that pieces of pure, unalloyed titanium had also been found on the tie. Titanium was less common in the 1970s than it is now, and, at the time, it could only be found in metal production or fabrication facilities, or in chemical companies that employed it, together with aluminium, to store extremely corrosive substances. The conclusions presented a flimsy case for Cooper's employment in a chemical or metal manufacturing plant. Theories, Hypotheses and Conjecture The FBI released a few of its working theories and preliminary findings from time to time over the 45 years that it was actively conducting its investigation. These were based on witness testimony and a few pieces of physical evidence. Based on testimony that Cooper recognised Tacoma from the air as the jet circled Pudget Sound and his accurate statement to Mucklow that McCord Air Force Base was roughly 20 minutes drive from Seattle-Tacoma, a detail that most civilians would not know or mention, it appears that Cooper was familiar with the Seattle area and may have been an Air Force veteran. It is likely that his financial condition was desperate. Extortionists and other criminals who take huge sum of money almost always do it because they need it immediately. Otherwise, the crime is not worth the significant risk said retired FBI top investigator Ralph Himmelsbach. Cooper could also have been a thrill-seeker who did the jump simply to prove it could be done. The Cooper investigation was taken over by Seattle's special agent Larry Carr, and he thinks it is conceivable that the hijacker got his identity from the comic book character Dan Cooper, a fictional Royal Canadian Air Force test pilot who participated in several heroic escapades, including parachuting. In a well-known French-language Belgian comic book series, a cover from the series showing test pilot Cooper skydiving is reenacted on the FBI website. They assumed he had come across them while serving in Europe because the Dan Cooper comics were never translated into English or imported to the country. Carl learned of the comic book link while pursuing D.B. Cooper internet sites, where interest in the case remains unwavering. Carl also discovered the citizen sleuths who volunteered to assist and revive the investigation on the forums. Cooper surviving the leap is quite unlikely, according to Larry Carr, but he came from somewhere and from someone, and that is what we want to know. The Dan Cooper comic books may have piqued his intention whilst he was serving in the Air Force and at one point stationed in Europe. It is Larry Carr's belief that he gained expertise and experience in the aviation business which was in its early stages in 1971 through his employment as a cargo loader aboard aeroplanes. Cooper would have had an emergency parachute on because part of his business involved throwing stuff out of planes. 
This could have given him a basic understanding of parachutes, but not necessarily the information he needed to survive the leap. Despite coming from the East Coast, he chose to work in aviation in Seattle after leaving the military. It is probable that he lost his employment in the 1970s or 1971 due to a slump in the aviation industry's economy. Nobody would have missed him. He had been a recluse with little to no relatives, according to the statement. Cooper's official physical description has not altered and is regarded as accurate. The flight attendants Schaffner and Mucklow, who spent the most time with Cooper, were interviewed on the same night in different cities and provided nearly identical descriptions, including him being in his mid-forties, about 5 feet 10 inches tall, 180 pounds, and having close-set, piercing brown eyes. Cooper appeared to be knowledgeable about aeroplanes, flying techniques, and the surrounding landscape in order to force the possibility that he would force one or more prisoners to jump with him, he insisted on four parachutes. This ensured that he would not be purposefully given sabotaged gear. The 727-100 was the perfect aeroplane for a bailout escape, thanks to its aft air stair, as well as the high aft ward positioning of all three engines, which permitted a somewhat safe leap despite the proximity of the engine exhaust. The 727 had single-point refueling, a then-new technology that allowed for fast refueling of all tanks from a single fuel outlet. Without entering the cockpit, where he may have been overpowered by the three pilots, Cooper understood how to regulate the aircraft's airspeed and altitude. Additionally, the aircraft had the capacity to sustain a slow, low-altitude flight for a lengthy period of time without stalling, unusual for a commercial jet airliner. Cooper was also familiar with important details like the typical refueling interval and the ideal flap position of 15 degrees, which was specific to that aircraft. He was also aware that the air stair could be lowered while the aircraft was in flight, a capability that was never made known to civilian flight crews because it was never necessary for a passenger flight and that the air stairs operation, controlled by a single switch in the back of the cabin, could not be overridden from the cockpit. During the Vietnam War, the Central Intelligence Agency used 727s to drop spies and supplies behind enemy lines, so it is possible that he was aware of this as well. Cooper's chances of survival were questioned by the FBI, who concluded that he lacked essential knowledge and expertise in skydiving. Cooper was once assumed to be a skilled jumper, maybe even a paratrooper, according to Carr. We concluded after a few years that this simply was not true. In the rain, in the dark, with the 172 miles per hour wind in his face wearing loafers and a trench coat, no experienced parachutist would have made the leap. It was just too dangerous. A good skydiver would have verified that his reserve parachute was solely for training and had been stitched shut, but he also failed to notice that. Cooper jumped into a possible 15-degree Fahrenheit wind at 10,000 feet in November over Washington State without wearing a helmet or making a request for one, and without sufficient protection against the significant wind chill. The FBI first assumed that Cooper did not make it through his leap. Carr stated, 
driving into the wilderness without a plan, without the right equipment, in such terrible conditions, he probably never even got the chute open. Agents said that surviving in the rugged terrain at the start of winter would have been very difficult without a companion and a designated landing location, even if he did land safely. To pull off such a feat, this would have needed a carefully timed leap, which in turn would have required the flight crew's participation. There is no proof that Cooper asked for or got any such assistance from the crew, or knew exactly where he was when he dove into the dark, stormy night. It is indeed possible that Cooper died after jumping out of the plane. Given that the parachute he used could not be controlled, his clothing and boots were not appropriate for a rocky landing, and he jumped into a forested area at night, which is perilous to say the least. The evidence does imply that Cooper was not an experienced professional. In 1976, debate erupted over the hijacking's imminent statute of limitations expiry, the majority of published legal studies concurred that it would not really matter since a prosecution may claim Cooper had lost his legal immunity on any number of legitimate technical reasons. And because statutory interpretation varied greatly from case to case and court to court, when a Portland grand jury indicted John Doe alias Dan Cooper for air piracy and violating the Hobbs Act in absentia in November, the issue was put to rest. In the event that the hijacker is ever captured, the formal accusation formally began prosecution that it may be conducted. Possible Suspects Between 1971 and 2016, the FBI dealt with over a thousand serious suspects, including several notoriety seekers and confessors on their deathbeds. Kenneth Peter Christiansen After viewing a Cooper hijacking television program in 2003, Minnesotan liar Christiansen was convinced that his late brother Kenneth, 1926-1994, was Cooper. He contacted a private investigator in New York City after making several fruitless attempts to persuade first the FBI and then writer and filmmaker Nora Ephron, who he believed would create a movie about the subject. The detective, Skip Porteous, authored a book in 2010 that assumed that Christiansen was the hijacker. The circumstantial evidence connected Christiansen to the Cooper case was also described in an episode of the history series Brad Meltzer's Decoded the following year. Christiansen enlisted in the army in 1944 and underwent paratroop training. He periodically performed training jumps when stationed in Japan and in the late 1940s with occupation soldiers, even though World War II had ended by the time he was there in 1945. After leaving the army, he began working for Northwest Orient as a mechanic in the South Pacific in 1954. He then had positions as a flight attendant and as a purser in the company's Seattle headquarters. At the time of the hijacking, Christiansen, who was 45 years old, stood out greatly from Cooper in terms of height, 5 foot 8 inches, and weight, 150 pounds, and skin tone. Christiansen enjoyed drinking bourbon and smoked cigarettes, just like the hijacker. The drink Cooper had requested... 
Schaffner said to a reporter that she could not positively identify Christiansen, but that Christiansen's photos matched her memories of the hijacker's look more closely than those of other subjects she had seen. The FBI maintains its stance that Christiansen cannot be regarded as a key suspect, despite the notoriety that Porteous's book and the 2011 television program garnered. The lack of clear, damning evidence, a degree of skydiving experience above that indicated by their suspect profile, and a poor match to eyewitness physical descriptions are cited. Jack Kofelt Bryant Jack Kofelt, 1917-1975, was a scam artist, ex-felon and alleged government informant who claimed to have been the driver and confidant of Robert Todd Lincoln Beckwith the great-grandson of Abraham Lincoln, the last indisputable descendant. He started claiming to be Cooper in 1972, and via James Brown, a former cellmate, he tried to sell his narrative to a Hollywood movie firm. About 50 miles, 80 kilometres southeast of Ariel, he claimed to have landed close to Mount Hood, where he hurt himself and lost the ransom money. Although Kofelt was in his mid-50s in 1971, Photos of him resemble the composite drawings. He allegedly was in Portland on the hijacking day and suffered leg injuries around that time that were consistent with an accident while skydiving. After reviewing Kofelt's story, the FBI concluded that it was a fabrication because it differed in numerous key ways from the material that had not been made public. Brown persisted in spreading the myth long after Kofelt passed away in 1975. Unfazed, it was examined and rejected by a number of media outlets, including the CBS show 60 Minutes. Lynn Doyle Cooper In July 2011, Lynn Doyle L.D. Cooper, a leather craftsman and Korean War veteran, 1931-1999, was named as a suspect by his niece, Marla Cooper. When she was eight years old, Cooper and another uncle gathered at her grandmother's house in Sisters, Oregon, 150 miles southeast of Portland, to pilot something extremely mischievous that would include the usage of expensive walkie-talkies. The uncles were reportedly off turkey hunting the day after Flight 305 was hijacked, but L.D. Cooper returned home with a bloodied shirt after what he claimed to be a car accident. Later, according to Marla, her parents started to think L.D. was the hijacker. She also claimed that despite not being a skydiver or paratrooper, her late uncle, who passed away in 1999, was enamoured with the Canadian comic book hero Dan Cooper and had one of his comic books thumbtacked on his wall. According to reports that it was based on Flight 305 eyewitness Robert Gregory's description, New York Magazine published an alternative witness drawing of a man with marcelled hair, horn-rimmed sunglasses and a russet-coloured suit jacket with broad lapels in August 2011. According to the report, L.D. Cooper had wavy hair that seemed to be marcelled, as did Dwayne Webber. No fingerprints were discovered on a guitar strap created by L.D. Cooper, according to the FBI. However, they noted that there was no guarantee that the hijacker was the source of the organic material found in the tie. A week later, they added that his DNA did not fit the incomplete DNA profile recovered from the hijacker's tie. 
Barbara Dayton. Barbara Dayton, a recreational pilot and librarian at the University of Washington, was born Robert Dayton and served in the American Merchant Marine and subsequently the Army during World War II. Dayton worked with explosives in the construction industry and had dreams of working for a reputable airline, but he was unable to get a commercial pilot's license. In 1969, Dayton underwent gender transition surgery and adopted the name Barbara in order to get revenge on the airline industry and the FAA. She claimed to have faked the Cooper hijacking two years later whilst posing as a male. These organisations, she claimed, were to blame since their unachievable rules and regulations had prohibited her from becoming an airline pilot. Dayton first claimed that the ransom money was stashed away in a cistern close to Woodburn, Oregon, a suburb south of Portland. However, Dayton then changed her mind allegedly after finding that charges for hijacking may still be filed. She did not nearly resemble the physical description either. The 2002 death of Dayton has never received any public commentary from the FBI. William Gossett Veteran of the Marine Corps Army and the Army Air Forces who served in Korea and Vietnam is William Pratt Gossett, 1930-2003. His military training included outdoor survival and jumping. Gossett's obsession with the Cooper hijacking was well known. A lawyer named Galen Cook claimed that Gossett previously gave his sons the key to a safe deposit box in Vancouver, British Columbia, that allegedly held the long-missing ransom money. Cook has been gathering information on Gossett for years. The FBI is unable to reliably locate Gossett in the Pacific Northwest at the time of the hijacking and does not have any concrete proof accusing him. Other than the words Gossett made to someone, there is not a single connection to the D.B. Cooper case, according to the Special Agent Carr. John List in Westfield, New Jersey, 15 days before the Cooper hijacking, John Emil List, 1925-2008, an accountant and war veteran, killed his wife, three teenage children, an 85-year-old mother. He then stole $20,000 from his mother's bank account and vanished. Due to the date of his disappearance, several similarities to the hijacker's description and the notion that a fugitive suspect of mass murder has nothing to lose, he caught the attention of the Cooper task team. List confessed killing his family after being apprehended in 1989, although he denied being involved in the Cooper hijacking. Despite the fact that his name keeps popping up in Cooper stories and documentaries, there is no solid evidence linking him to the crime, and the FBI no longer views him as a suspect. List died in jail in 2008. Ted Mayfield Former Special Forces member Theodore Ernest Mayfield, who passed away in 2015, was also a pilot, competitive skydiver and skydiving teacher. He was sentenced in 1994 for negligent murder after two of his pupils perished when their parachute failed to open. He was later found to be indirectly at fault for 13 more skydiving fatalities as a result of subpar gear and inadequate instruction. 
In his youth, Mayfield was also detained but not found guilty for armed robbery. He was given a three-year probationary term in 2010 for flying a plane 26 years after losing his pilot's license and certifications for rigging. According to FBI agent Ralph Himmelsbach, who knew Mayfield from a previous dispute at a nearby airport, he was frequently mentioned as a suspect early on in the inquiry. He was disqualified in part because he phoned Himmelsbach less than two hours after Flight 305 touched down in Reno to offer guidance on accepted skydiving procedures, potential landing areas and details of nearby skydivers. The night of the Cooper hijacking, Mayfield's daughter claimed she contacted him at home. He calmly responded and spoke with her about the event and his phone chat with the FBI. Daniel Deverack and Matthew Myers, two amateur investigators, once more suggested Mayfield as a possibility in 2006. They questioned Himmelbach's judgment that Mayfield could not possibly have discovered a phone in time to call the FBI less than four hours after falling into the woods at night. They argued that Mayfield phoned Himmelsbach to create an alibi rather than to provide guidance. Mayfield denied taking part. Beyond Himmelsbach's initial assertion that Mayfield was eliminated as a suspect early on, the FBI made no other comments. Richard McCoy Jr. Richard McCoy Jr., an army soldier who did two tours of duty in Vietnam as a demolition specialist and then as a helicopter pilot with the Green Berets, lived from 1942 to 1974. After leaving the military, he joined the Utah National Guard as a warrant officer and started recreational skydiving with the goal of becoming a Utah State Trooper. McCoy orchestrated the most well-known of the alleged copycat hijackings on April 7, 1972, in Denver, Colorado. He boarded United Airlines Flight 855, a Boeing 727 with aft stairs, and demanded four parachutes and $500,000 whilst holding what turned out to be a paperweight that resembled a hand grenade and an empty revolver. McCoy ordered the plane back into the air and jumped out over Provo, Utah, leaving behind his handwritten hijacking instructions and his fingerprints on a magazine he had been reading. He was taken into custody on April the 9th and found to be in possession of the ransom money. Following his trial and conviction, he was given a 45-year sentence. Two years later, he and his accomplices broke out of Louisburg Federal Penitentiary by smashing through the main gate with a rubbish truck. After being located in Virginia Beach three months later, McCoy was shot and murdered by FBI soldiers. Parole officer Bernie Rhodes and retired FBI agent Russell Kalem claimed to have correctly identified McCoy as Cooper in their 1991 book, D.B. Cooper, The Real McCoy. They noted that striking parallels between the two hijackings, McCoy's own failure to acknowledge or deny that he was Cooper, and accusations made by McCoy's family that the tie and mother of Pearl Tyclip left on the plane belonged to McCoy, the FBI agent who killed McCoy was one of their advocates. He said, When I shot Richard McCoy, I shot D.B. Cooper at the same time. The FBI does not view McCoy as a suspect in the Cooper case, despite the fact that there is no reasonable doubt that he was responsible for the Denver hijacking. This is due to age and physical description, discrepancies, 
a level of skydiving proficiency far beyond what was believed to be possessed by the hijacker, and solid proof that McCoy was in Las Vegas the day of the Portland hijacking, and at his Utah home the next day for Thanksgiving dinner with his family. Sheridan Peterson Sheridan Peterson, 1926-2021, worked as a technical editor for Boeing, a Seattle-based company, after serving in the Marine Corps during World War II. Peterson's background as a smoke jumper, love of physical risk-taking, comparable look and age to the Cooper description, as well as his experience as a smoke jumper and propensity for taking bodily risks, piqued the eye of investigators shortly after the skyjacking. Peterson frequently teased the media, refusing to definitively answer if Cooper was actually him. Entrepreneur Eric Ulis stated that he was 98% confident that Peterson was Cooper, after spending years looking into the case. However, when asked by FBI officials, Peterson claimed he was in Nepal at the time of the hijacking. 2021 saw his passing. Robert Rackstraw during the Vietnam War, Robert Wesley Rackstraw, a retired pilot and former prisoner, served in an army, chopper crew and other units. He passed away in 2019 at the age of 75. He was brought to the Cooper Task Force's attention in February 1978, following his arrest in Iran and deportation to the United States to face allegations of explosives possession and check-kitting. After being freed on bail some months later, Rackstraw tried to pose as dead by radioing a phony Mayday call and told controllers he was jumping out of a rented plane over Monterey Bay. Later, in Fullerton, California, police detained him on an extra allegation of fabricating federal pilots' licenses. The plane he claimed to have ditched was later discovered in a neighbouring hangar, freshly painted. Despite his young age, 28-1971, physical similarity to Cooper's composite sketches, military parachute experience and criminal history, Cooper investigators removed him as a suspect in 1979 when no concrete proof of his participation could be produced. Rackstraw reappeared as a suspect in a book and a history show in 2016. The book's author, Thomas J. Colbert, and lawyer Mark Zaid filed a lawsuit on September the 8th, 2016 to compel the FBI to reveal the Cooper case file in accordance with the Freedom of Information Act. At an unidentified area in the Pacific Northwest, Colbert and a team of volunteer investigators discovered what they thought to be a decades-old parachute strap in 2017. Later in 2017, they discovered a piece of foam that they believed to be a component of Cooper's parachute backpack. Tom and Donna Colbert said in January 2018 that they had discovered a confession letter that had been prepared in December 1971 and had codes that matched three army units that Rackstraw had been in. According to reports, one of the Flight 305 flight attendants could not detect any parallels between images of Rackstraw from the 1970s and how she remembered Cooper looking. The fresh accusations, according to Rackstraw's attorney, are the stupidest thing I have ever heard. Rackstraw said that the 2016 investigations were the reason he was fired, before clarifying that the admission was a ruse. Rackstraw said to Colbert, I told everybody I was the hijacker. 2019 saw his passing. 
Walter R. Recker. Walter R. Recker, 1933-2014, was a former military paratrooper and intelligence operative. Carl Lurin, a friend of his, suggested him as a potential suspect in 2018. Recker admitted to being the hijacker to Lauren over the phone in a taped conversation in 2008. In a letter that was notarized, Recker granted Lauren permission to tell his tale after his passing. He further let Lauren record their phone discussions regarding the incident for six weeks in late 2008. Recker provided information about his account of the hijacking in recordings that lasted more than three hours. He also admitted it to Lisa Storey, his niece. Lauren deduced that Recker landed close to Klee Ilum, Washington. Based on his description of the topography, he travelled over to get to the drop zone. Lauren tracked down Jeff Ozadax, who was operating a dump truck close to Klee Ilum the night of the hijacking, and had met a stranger at the Teenaway Junction Cafe just outside of town. After Recker mentioned meeting a dump truck driver at the Wayside Cafe after landing, Aziadax answered the phone and the man requested him to give his friend instructions to the cafe, probably to be picked up. Joe Koenig, a former officer with the Michigan State Police, was persuaded of Recker's culpability by Lorin. Later, Koenig wrote Getting the Truth, I am D.B. Cooper. Skepticism has been raised about these assertions. The drop zone assumed by most experts is more than 150 miles north of Clearloom, which is also far from Tina Bar, where some of the ransom money has been discovered. It is also much more to the east and north of the known flight route of Flight 305. Contrary to the FBI's reported description of Wrecker as a skydiving hobbyist at best, Recker was a military paratrooper and a private skydiver with hundreds of jumps to his name. Recker also did not match the FBI composite image that Lorin and Aziadex cited to justify why Aziadex's suspicions were not immediately raised. In response to the accusations made against Recker, the FBI stated that it would not be appropriate to comment on particular tips that were sent to them and that there was no proof that established a suspect's guilt beyond a reasonable doubt as of this point. William J. Smith A report naming William J. Smith, 1928-2018, of Bloomfield, New Jersey as a suspect appeared in the Oregon in November 2018. The essay was based on analysis of Army data that was supplied to the FBI in the middle of 2018. Veteran of World War II, Smith was native of New Jersey. He joined in the US Navy after graduating from high school and offered to participate in combat aircrew training. He went on to work for the Lehigh Valley Railroad after being discharged, where he was impacted by the 1970s bankruptcy of the Penn Central Transportation Company, the biggest bankruptcy in American history at that time. According to the story, his pension loss led to resentment towards corporate institutions and the transportation industry, as well as a sudden need for cash. Smith was 43 years old when the incident occurred. Ira Daniel Cooper who may be the inspiration for the hijacker's alias, is listed on a list of former students who died in World War II, 
in his high school yearbook. According to the analysis, Smith's military aviation training would have given him familiarity with aircraft and parachute systems, and his railroad experience would have enabled him to locate railroad lines and board a train to get away from the region after landing. The analyst hypothesized that the clip-on ties metal spiral chips may have originated from a locomotive repair facility. Smith's close friend, Dan Clare, who served in the military at Fort Lewis during the conflict, may have provided him with knowledge on the Seattle region. The analyst pointed out that Dan Leclerc was the self-described Cooper in Max Gunthar's 1985 book. At Oak Island Yard in Newark, Smith and Clare collaborated whilst employed by Conrail. Smith was the yardmaster there until he left, according to the story. Cooper, FBI drawings and a photo of Smith that was posted on the Lehigh Valley Railroad website bore a striking likeness. It would not be proper, according to the FBI, to comment on tips related to Smith. Dwayne L. Weber Dwayne L. Weber, a World War II Army soldier, did time for fraud and theft in at least six prisons between 1945 and 1968. He died in 1995. Joe, Weber's widow, first suggested him as a candidate based mostly on a confession made on his deathbed three days prior to his passing in 1995. Weber informed his wife, I am Dan Cooper. She claimed that the name had no importance for her, but a friend later informed her of its significance in the hijacking. She visited her neighbourhood library to do research on Cooper, located Max Gunthar's book, and saw her husband's handwriting in the margin notes. Weber chain-smoked and drank bourbon, much like the hijacker. A journey to Seattle and the Columbian River in 1979 was another piece of circumstantial evidence. Whilst acknowledging that Weber does meet the physical description and does have the criminal past that I have always suspected was linked with the crime, Himmelsbach maintained that Weber was not Cooper. When his fingerprints did not match any of those taken from the hijacked airliner in July 1998, and no other direct evidence could be obtained to incriminate him, the FBI removed Weber as an active suspect. Later, his DNA did not match the specimens found in Cooper's tie. Similar hijackings. Cooper was hardly the first individual to try and steal aircraft for their own benefit. For instance, a Canadian called Paul Joseph Sinti tried to commandeer an Air Canada DC-8 over Montana in the early days of November 1971. But the crew overcame him when he laid down his shotgun to put on his parachute. A swarm of copycats emerged, largely in 1972, in response to Cooper's apparent success. Several noteworthy incidents from that year include... On January the 20th, Boston resident and Army veteran Richard Charles LaPont boarded Hughes Airwest Flight 800 from McCarran International Airport in Las Vegas. He wanted $50,000, two parachutes and a helmet when the DC-9 was on the taxiway whilst brandishing what he claimed to be a bomb. He instructed the aircraft to fly towards Denver in an easterly direction after releasing the 51 passengers and two flight attendants 
and then he made his escape across the open plains of northeastern Colorado. A few hours later, authorities found him following the locator-equipped parachute and his footsteps in the dirt and snow. There was also the aforementioned ex-Army Green Beret named Richard McCoy Jr., who hijacked a United Airlines 727-100 on April the 7th after it took off from Denver, diverting it to San Francisco and then managing to escape over Utah using the $500,000 demand as ransom. Despite successfully landing, he was detained two days later. On May the 7th at Allentown, Pennsylvania, Frederick Heinemann commandeered an Eastern Airlines 727 with a revolver, demanded $303,000 and then parachuted into his native Honduras. A month later, he turned himself in at an American embassy at Tegucigalpas, with the FBI hot on his tail and a $25,000 premium on his head. On June the 23rd, Martin McNally a jobless gas station attendant hijacked an American Airlines 727 travelling from St. Louis, Missouri, to Tulsa, Oklahoma, with a submachine pistol. He then redirected the plane to the east, to Indiana, and escaped with the $500,000 ransom. Despite this, he lost the ransom money as he left the plane. McNally safely landed close to Peru, Indiana, and was found a few days later in a suburb of Detroit. In a podcast interview from 2020, McNally said that Cooper had influenced him. In 1972, 15 hijacking attempts that resembled Cooper's failed. The frequency of the hijacking decreased significantly once universal luggage searches were implemented in 1973. Before July 11, 1980, when Glenn K. Tripp commandeered Northwest Orient Flight 608, at Seattle-Tacoma Airport and demanded $600,000, $100,000 by an independent report, two parachutes and the murder of his superior, there were no other famous Cooper imitators. Tripp's alcoholic beverage was covertly poisoned with Valium by a savvy flight attendant. Tripp was captured following a 10-hour standoff in which he lowered his demands to three cheeseburgers and a ground vehicle for escape. On January the 21st, 1983, Tripp would attempt to hijack the same Northwest airplane again, this time requesting to be sent to Afghanistan. He was shot and killed by FBI officers as the jet touched down in Portland. Aftermath. Unrestricted and unchecked commercial airplane flight ended with the Cooper hijacking. In spite of the Federal Sky Marshal's program implementation the year before, 31 hijackings occurred in American airspace in 1972, 19 of which were conducted with the express intention of extorting money. In 15 of the extortion incidents, parachutes were also sought after the hijackers. The FAA started forcing airlines to conduct full passenger and luggage searches in early 1973. Federal courts determined that such searches were legal when used universally, 
and when restricted to searches for weapons and explosives, despite several lawsuits alleging that they were violating Fourth Amendment safeguards against search and seizure, in 1973 there were only two hijacking attempts, both conducted by psychiatric patients. One of the hijackers, Samuel Bick, wanted to assassinate President Nixon by crashing the plane into the White House. The FAA mandated that the outside of all Boeing 727 aircraft be equipped with a spring-loaded mechanism, subsequently called the Cooper Vane, that prevents the lowering of the aft air stair during flight in response to the copycat hijackings of 1972. The vane and blades spin about the pivot when the aircraft is in flight, because the force of the air pushing against it is greater than the resistance of the spring. This prevents the air stair from opening by extending the section of the blade behind the pivot over the edge. When the aircraft is on the ground and the spring's force is greater than the airflow pushing back against it, the vane turns perpendicular to the airflow and the blade pivots away from the air stair's edge. As a result, the air stair may operate normally on the ground. The vane is automatically operated and cannot be controlled from within the aeroplane. Peepholes were required to be installed in all cockpit doors as a direct result of the hijacking. This allows the cockpit personnel to view passengers without opening the cockpit door. The hijacked 727-100 plane was sold by Northwest Orient to Piermont Airlines in 1978. Piermont Airlines changed the plane's registration to N838N and continued to use it for domestic passenger flights. It was bought by Key Airlines in 1984 and its registration changed to N29KA and was added to the Air Force's fleet of civilian charter aircraft that transported staff members between Nellis Air Force Base and the Tonopah Test Range during the F-117 Nighthawk development program. The plane was disassembled for pieces at a Memphis boneyard in 1996. The identity of D.B. Cooper will probably never be known. The story is filled with many pretenders to the throne that they have somewhat muddied the waters of the mystery. Your support and feedback are paramount to us. Our social media links and email addresses are readily available in our bio, and we warmly invite you to reach out to us with any thoughts, suggestions or ideas for future episodes. Your input plays a vital role in our continued improvement and ability to provide top-quality content for our listeners. As we embark on our next adventure, we find ourselves drawn to the enigmatic Belmez faces. For those unfamiliar, these mysterious markings have been the subject of much speculation and intrigue, appearing and disappearing from homes in the small Spanish town of Belmez de la Morelida. Accessibility is of the utmost importance to us, and we are dedicated to making our podcast available to all. All past episodes are available for free on all major platforms, as well as on our website. Additionally, if you enjoy the music that we have specially composed for this series, you can listen to it in its entirety on Bandcamp, free of charge. We are deeply grateful for your time and attention, and thank you for being part of our journey of discovery. Your support means everything to us, and we look forward to our continued exploration into the realm of the unexplained. Thanks for listening.
If you are listening to this message, then the subliminal frequency has successfully calibrated to your mind. Do not be alarmed. I am here to advise you to explore the Occultaria of Albion. The Occultaria of Albion is both a written series as well as a podcast. It explores various locations where paranormal and supernatural events have occurred. It is a broadcast on a forgotten frequency. Hauntings, time slips, cryptids, cults and more are investigated and examined. Enter a world designed by torch and moonlight. Go to occultariaofalbion.com or search Occultaria of Albion wherever you find your favourite podcasts. End transmission.